Isaiah chapter 53, let me read to you from verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, he hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. I want to take you to a Friday and to the city of Jerusalem and to note that the smell of death is in the air. And just outside the city wall, just north of the Damascus Gate, in a place that's been long reserved for public executions, three crosses stand on a hill called Golgotha. And the crowd has gathered this day. Not that crucifixion in itself was something unusual, but today it's different. Someone unusual is being crucified. And up the road comes a group of people. The soldiers know that two of the men who are to be crucified are the kind of criminals that you find in any big city across the world. That's no big deal. But the third man... The one from up north, the preacher from Nazareth, his case is different. They don't really know who he is, but they sense that he's important. And certainly there's a buzz in the crowd that have gathered that day. There's more people than usual, a bigger crowd, noisier, rowdier, milling to and fro, waiting for the action to begin. And so up the road comes a parade of people. It's not what they expect. It's been led by a tall, strong foreigner carrying a cross. He couldn't possibly be the one that they're going to crucify. He's not. Turns out he's a man by the name of Simon whom they've compelled to carry the cross. But behind him, behind him comes another man. And for him each step was an agony to behold beaten to within an inch of his life. His back is in shreds. His front is covered with the markings of the whip. His face is disfigured and swollen, where they've ripped out his beard by the roots and beaten him. And on his head, a crown of thorns, those six-inch spikes sticking under the skin. He's just a shell of a man, more dead than alive, truth be told. When they take him to the place of his execution, they laid him on the ground upon the cross. And as they adjusted his arms and his legs, there was no resistance. And the soldiers did their work quickly. One hand over here, the other hand over there, wrapping rope around the arms and around the legs to keep them in place. Then they drove a spike through the forearm, 
side of the wrist so that when the weight of the cross fell, the spike wouldn't rip all the way through the hand. A spike in each wrist, a spike through the legs. And with the ropes in place, they began to pull the cross upwards. Blood spurts from the raw wounds and at the right moment they let go of the ropes and the cross falls with a thud. And there hangs the Lord Jesus, exposed before the world, beaten and bruised and bloodied. And the soldiers look at one another at a job well done, and one says to the other, Go grab the dice, and we'll gamble for his clothes. Good Friday, we call that day. Mind wrestles with many questions when he contemplates the scene and chief amongst those questions is why did these things happen? Why should a young man just starting out in life find that life so quickly cut off? Why did Jesus of Nazareth die? And just who is behind this travesty of justice? How could such a good man come to such a bad ending? Beaten, spat upon, mocked, scourged, insulted, crucified between two thieves. What's good about that day? Who did this? And what purpose could it possibly serve to crucify the Lord Jesus in such a way. And yet when Isaiah comes to the end of this chapter, he devotes the last stanza, those last three verses, to a consideration of what the death of the servant of God really means. And these verses give us God's answer to the question, why did Jesus die? Now Isaiah wrote these words 700 years before Calvary and he puts them into the future tense and we're going to do something similar this evening. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The first thing that Isaiah tells us of our Savior is that he will be crushed. It pleased, pleased the Lord to bruise him. So when we come to ask the question just who is ultimately responsible for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the answer might surprise you. According to our Bibles, God takes full responsibility for the death of his Son. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. Now I can say with hand and heart as a father of one daughter and three sons that I cannot fathom willingly putting any of my children to death, much less taking pleasure in it. I can't understand that. But the truth before us stands and cannot be denied. The Lord Jesus Christ died because his Father willed it so. The sufferings of our Lord Jesus, uh, that those that he endured did not happen by chance. 
nor simply because the Jewish leaders of his day uh, took umbrage against him, or because Pilate cravenly caved in to their demands, behind all of the evil deeds and plotting of men stands the Lord God Almighty. And he alone sent our Savior to the cross. And I believe that until you finally understand that, the true meaning of the death of the Lord Jesus will be lost to you. God willed that his own son be bruised, crushed, suffering grief. He desired to make of his own son an offering for sin. Isaiah will go on to talk about the great results that will flow from the suffering. And there are glories that will follow. We are told firstly that he shall see his seed. That's something of a privilege. It's one thing to see your children born and grow and develop and mature and take delight in that. And I know that there's some here that can talk of grandchildren in a similar way. And I think of the words of Psalm 128, the great prayer, that little promise. Thou shalt see thy children's children. What a privilege that is. And some even live long enough to see great-grandchildren. We need to be a little bit closer to 100 years of age for that to happen, but it happens. But most never get beyond that. We see the next generation and perhaps the one after it, but we're told that the Lord Jesus saw all his descendants. He shall see his seed. He looked beyond just the descendants of two generations because he is the eternal son of God and he lives forever. He's able to see all of his seed. What else? Well, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days. This seems strange. And I'm sure Isaiah must be thinking to himself, just what exactly is the Lord having me to write here? We're writing of the suffering servant that's been put to death. He's made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. How can he possibly prolong his days? I came across a little quote a little while back. I've been holding on to this one for a while. It says, Darkness fell, his friends scattered, hope seemed lost, but heaven just started counting to three. You see, after our Saviour's death, upon the third day he rose again. He will prolong his death. I think it's speaking of the resurrection here. You see, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus is not the end of the story. God is not defeated at the death of his Son. The Lord Jesus will rise again from the dead, never to die again. He shall prolong his days. You know what the Lord Jesus said to John when he met with him on the Isle of Patmos there in Revelation chapter 1? He said, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Evermore. He shall prolong his days. More than that, we're told that the pleasure of the Lord 
shall prosper in his hand. In other words, his father had planned a great work for him to do. And God has ordained that his son will be the means by which a vast multitude will be saved and brought to glory. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In other words, he will be successful. He will be successful in the work that his father gave him to do. We have mentioned it before, but while our Savior was hanging upon the cross, one of the great statements that he uttered was, It is finished. Not I am finished, but it is finished. The work is finished. It's the word that the artist would use at the completion of his masterpiece. It's finished. It's complete. The Lord Jesus looked upon the work that he had accomplished for his Father, and it was finished. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Death would not be the end. Death would simply signal the victory that our Savior has won for his Father's cause. Yes, he will be crushed. He will be put to death. He will be bruised, and his soul made an offering for sin. But it's not the end. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What about the next verse? Verse 11. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. If our Saviour is being crushed in verse 10, he is being satisfied in verse 11. First he suffers, then he sees, then he's satisfied. Now, let's suppose we ask the question this way. What could possibly justify the terrible sufferings that the Lord Jesus endured upon the cross? And I don't just mean the physical sufferings. Yes, it was torturous. And it was wicked the things that men did to him. But people have suffered at the hands of wicked men right since the beginning of time. We're thinking beyond the physical suffering. We're talking about the emotional, the spiritual sufferings. The sufferings which, are, which caused our Savior to pray in agony that the cup of suffering might be removed from him. That unrelenting pressure of knowing beforehand what was about to transpire in the burden and the bearing away of our sins. Thinking of the words of the hymn. O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head. Our load was laid on thee. Thou stoodest in the sinner's stead and didst bear all ill for me. Isaiah has already told us that it pleased the father to bruise his own son. That in itself seems amazing. Even if we don't fully understand it, there are certainly more questions for us to ask. Why would God do this? Why would he do such a thing to his son? And why would his son so willingly submit to this plan? To, be, to, to know that the Lord Jesus was satisfied with the Father's plan. That after his suffering, that 
he would save the travail of his soul. He would see the finished work. He would see the final result. He would see what his death has accomplished and he shall be satisfied. If we take that little phrase for a moment and put it into words that our Saviour might have said, something like this, I want the joy of seeing my Father's house in heaven filled with his redeemed children. Therefore I am willing to suffer the pain and the shame and the scoffing rude, to suffer the brutal death of the cross, to take the just penalty of their sins, to bear the wrath of God so that they might be saved, and I am satisfied with my Father's plan. And by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. My righteous servant shall justify many. Tell me, have you ever been justified? Have you ever been put into a right standing with God where your sins are no longer held in account against you? But you're able to say they've been washed away by the blood of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you, or are you attempting to enter heaven some other way? I read of one man, quite determined in his thoughts. He said, I'm telling you, if there is a God... When I get to heaven, I won't be stopping to be interviewed. I'm going to head straight in. I've earned my place. It's not even close. He's a very rich man, very wealthy man. Maybe even a very charitable man. But he's right about one thing only. It's not even close. Because he's not as good as he thinks he is. He's a much greater sinner than he ever imagined he is. And for any man to try and earn their way to heaven, it was George Whitfield that said that I'd sooner climb to the moon on a rope of sand than to earn my way to heaven. You see, the only way to get to heaven is to admit that you don't deserve to go there. And to confess before God that because of your sin that you deserve only the hell that awaits and it's only by casting ourselves on the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us in that he died upon the cross to bear away our sins that we can have any hope of heaven at all. So are you following the man-made plan where you think that you've earned it and worked for it or are you going on the basis that the Lord Jesus has fulfilled the Father's plan and is satisfied with his knowledge that he has justified many by his death upon the cross. You can have one or the other. But not both. You can either try to work your way there yourself. Or you can rest upon the finished work of Christ. Not both. Then we get to verse 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, 
and made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah has almost come full circle here. He started by declaring uh, that the servant of God would be exalted in spite of his sufferings. That's back in chapter 52 and verse 13. Now he declares that the servant will be exalted because of his sufferings. And he's using military terminology here. He speaks of the Savior dividing the spoils of victory. Like the returning general triumphant over his enemies, coming back from the field of battle, Christ receives the highest glory. The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. A royal diadem adorns the mighty victor's brow. The Lord Jesus has won the victory because he was obedient to the Father's will and he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin upon the cross. Look how Isaiah puts it. He poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many. He made intercession for the transgressors. He's spelling it out in great detail. Well, just all that the Lord Jesus has accomplished. And since he is the captain of our salvation, and he has gained this great victory over sin, he will spoil, he will divide the spoils of victory with those who follow him. Let me illustrate for a moment. You think of the great battles told in the Bible of David against Goliath. And you might ask the question, why did those two men fight one on one upon the battlefield? Well, the answer was very simple. Each man represented the army from which he came. David fought for Israel. Goliath fought for the Philistines. And when David won... The whole army won. When Goliath was defeated, the Philistines were routed. And Israel chased them back to where they came from. And then 1 Samuel 17 and verse 53 adds this little detail. And the children of Israel returned from chasing after the Philistines and they spoiled their tents. You see, after... David defeated Goliath. The men of the Philistine army ran as fast as they could back to their homeland, chased all the way by the army of Israel, and they left everything behind. And then when Israel returned, they spoiled their tents. They plundered their camp. David won the battle, but all of Israel shared the spoils of victory. It's the same with the Lord Jesus and us. We win because he won. doesn't mean we deserved it or we did anything towards it. We didn't. At best we were bystanders, standers watching him accomplish all of these things on our behalf. When he was numbered with the transgressors, he was numbered with us. When he bore the sin of many, he was bearing our sin. When he was appointed a grave with the wicked, he was buried in our grave. And what makes this all so amazing 
is that the, the Lord Jesus, as the victor over sin and death, has willingly shared his victory with us. This is the ultimate good news for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has returned victorious from this ultimate contest. The devil couldn't stop him. The cross did not defeat him. The grave could not hold him. The Lord Jesus has risen again undefeated. And he has subdued all his enemies. And he marches on in triumph. He is the undefeated sovereign and the ultimate victor. And there is none who can stand against him. And we are following in his train. He has attained the highest place in all the universe. He sits at the Father's right hand. And he does so by virtue of his sufferings on our behalf. He didn't come to this place by finding a new movement, though he did. Or by force of his oratory, which was magnificent. Or by his miracles, which were undoubtedly amazing. Not even by his own brilliance of his teaching, which is undeniable. He came to the highest place by taking the lowest position. Isaiah says in his own way what Paul will write to the Philippians over 700 years later. That Christ was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And it's only in the light of that truth, and because of that truth, and as a result of that truth, that God has highly exalted his Son to the highest place of honor. So that uh, one day, one day, every knee will bow before him. And every tongue will confess unto him that he is Lord. And they'll confess it all to the glory of God the Father. First he suffers. But then he is exalted. And his exaltation is not finished yet. Because one day he will return to the world that rejected him. And as I've said every knee will bow before him and every tongue confess unto him that he is Lord. But he's going to bring his children home. He's going to bring each and every one for whom he died back with him to the Father's house. They're going to enter into the joy of the Lord and into his presence where there is only joy everlasting to be found. And he'll see of the travail of his soul. And he shall be satisfied. And a work well done. Back in 1851 the preacher named Matthew Bridges. Wrote a few verses. To the much loved hymn crowned him with many crowns. The hymn we sing today is a combination of two men's writings. Verses added by both men. The hymn surveys the life and the death and the resurrection of our Saviour. And the last verse sums up really the, the future, future aspect of what Isaiah is speaking here in this last part of chapter 53. Crown him the Lord of years, the potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. All hail, Redeemer, hail. For thou hast died for me.
Thy praise and glory shall not fail throughout eternity. What a saviour. What a salvation. Glory to his name, we sing. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. And he put him to grief. And he made his soul an offering for sin. But he shall see his seed. He will prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And he'll see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. For he shall bear their iniquity. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, numbered with the transgressors, he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Oh no, the cross was not the end. The tomb was not the final resting place. The Lord Jesus was victorious over death and over sin and over the tomb and has risen to the Father's right hand and he will share the spoils of victory with all who will come to him. That's why he died. And to think that he will look upon that work and those whom he has redeemed and be satisfied with all that he has accomplished, I tell you, it, it makes me marvel to think that the Lord of glory would reach down so far from heaven to pick up so little and to bring us up to heaven with him and be glad that he suffered and died and paid the price of our redemption and look upon us and be pleased. I tell you, there must be a great transformation coming. But how else could he be pleased with such guilty sinners? You see, we're to be made into his image and conform to his likeness. And we'll share in the spoils of his victory. And we'll praise him forevermore. Let's bow in prayer. Father of heaven, we come in the Saviour's name. Thankful for the great work of redemption carried out by our Saviour. Fulfilling the purposes and plans of God whereby he, the Saviour of men, would take our place and suffer and die and bear away the wrath of God that was rightfully ours, taking our sins and our iniquities upon his own body, so that he in turn might give us his holiness and his righteousness. We cannot begin to understand all that took place upon the cross that day, but we thank thee for that wonderful transaction where our sins were laid upon him and his righteousness was given to us. We thank thee for our Saviour. Help us to rejoice in him. Help us to bring praise, glory and honour unto him all of our days. And may we sound forth the message of redemption so that all might hear and know that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, so loved us that he came to this world to die upon a cross to save us. Give repentance and faith to all who hear this message that they might turn from their sins and trust in thee and enter into that wonderful uh, that wonderful salvation that christ has provided and join that innumerable company of the saints
a number so vast that no man can number, to be found there for the eternal praise and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we ask these things. Amen.